Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Matthew Quick. More than ever, cultural tensions in America are running high. In The Reason You're Alive, best-selling author Matthew Quick boldly dives into this divide. The novel follows David Granger, a 68-year-old Vietnam War veteran. Living in a country he barely recognizes anymore, David is forced to confront his past to make sense of his present. So on the phone with us right now, we have Matthew Quick, author of The Reason You're Alive, and thanks for being with us today, Matthew. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Um, so I want to start off by talking a little bit about um, one of the things I really felt when I read this book were um, these two strong presences of both um, art and the military, which seem to be these opposing forces. Um, so how did writing about the two of those sort of help you shape the narrative? Um, you know, I, I wish I could say that you know I went into this book, you know, with a conscious decision of you know to to kind of make them uh, opposing forces, as you put it. But really, it was it was kind of subconscious. Um, and maybe the best way I can explain it is that I, I grew up uh, with my my grandfather was a World War II vet, and my uncle was a Vietnam vet, and they were probably two of the biggest male influences on my life. Um, they were very pro-military, you know, Republican, um, religious guys, uh, you know, very kind of right-wing guys. And of course, I decided to go to uh, a liberal arts school and and leave a lot of that philosophy behind. So, <laughs> you know, for me, writing the book was, was kind of a way to, to make sense of that. Um, you know, this heritage I have um, that that definitely is still a, a part of me. You know that these are guys that I admire a lot, but also as you know, a fiction writer and someone who traffics in a world that is extremely liberal. Um, trying to bridge that gap a little bit was what I was trying to do with the book. Absolutely. I mean, within the first chapter, you know, you don't really hold back. It goes right into this political divide. You really get a clear sense of where David's views are. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's that's where we are. Um, as a society as well, uh, you know, we, we've kind of, you know, developed into this us-them mentality across the board, and that was that was something that, you know, I, I kind of felt a long time ago, you know, as I kind of broke away from my family, um, but it's also, you know, ironically, you know, when I, when I first went to college and decided, you know, I was going to go in a different direction than where my family wanted me to go. I felt very much, you know, in at home with my liberal friends. Um, but somewhere along the line, I, I started to realize that, you know, my conservative family had had some good things to say too. You know, they had they had some wisdom that was just kind of dismissed out of hand often by a lot of the people that I was I was hanging out with. And you know, so David Granger is this, this guy who, um, when you meet him, especially if if you're liberal, you're going to think, I don't like this guy, and I don't want to spend time with this guy, and this guy has nothing to teach me. 
But hopefully as you take the journey through the book, you realize that that's absolutely not true, that he has a lot to offer regardless of your political opinion. And, and that's a narrative that I think you know, we need to push all over the place. You know, we need to talk to each other. We need to, to figure out what, why people have the opinions that they have and, and figure out a way to, to bridge those gaps to use that, that saying again. Mm, absolutely. Um, one interesting part of the book I noticed was um, towards the end of the book, Hank, David's son, admits that he's paid too much attention to his father's words and not enough to his actions. So he knows all about his father's views that he finds offensive. But then as he kind of gets to know his father more, he realizes that he has all these diverse friends and um, you know has all these different things. Do you think that that emphasis on um, paying t- too much attention to people's words and not enough to their actions is part of a larger problem today? Yeah, I, I do. Um, you know, I should say first and foremost that, you know, I'm a novelist, so I, I think words are definitely important. True, um, true. <laughs> you, you know, so I'm not going to say that, um, you know, words aren't hurtful or words can't be damaging, but I think we can politicize both sides of that. Um, you know, I mean, we live in a time now where Republicans are the ones who are, who are yelling about free speech. You know, it's it seems like everything's been turned upside down. And, you know, while I think that we need to take language seriously, um, we shouldn't use it to, to weaponize and to, to, to segregate and to, to dismiss, you know, human beings who are complicated, who are going to make mistakes, who might say things that, that aren't... Um, you know, deemed politically correct or, you know, might be offensive. I think the other thing, too, is just how quickly all of that is changing. Um, you know, and it, it just seems like every every few months, like, there are new rules on what people can say and what they can't say. And, uh, you know, I think to some degree that's a kind of, I mean, definitely that's a conversation that, that we should be having at large. But, again, you know, people – who are uneducated or aren't, you know, living on a university or aren't living in a big city kind of get left behind. And if we just say, you know, all these people who aren't privy to all these conversations that everyone are having, so therefore, like, they're they're stupid or we shouldn't take them seriously, I I think we're missing out on, um, you know, not only understanding but opportunity to to learn and, and to to use the aggregate of all the people to, to move forward. And I think that's really what this story is about, to get back to the novel. You know, Henri is this, you know, this middle-aged man who thinks he knows everything about his father and has completely dismissed him as this, you know, right-wing nut job and has literally banned him from seeing his granddaughter. And, you know, of course, tragedy strikes when and David has to um, undergo brain surgery. It, it throws him back into this, uh, a pattern of existing together, and Henri is suddenly forced to answer the question of what do I do with that? Um, you know, do I just jettison him off into a home and forget about him, or do I try to figure out this problem? And of course, it, that forces him to to see his father as a human being again, to interact with his father, to get to know his father in a way that maybe he never has before. I um I did find it interesting at one point towards the end of the novel when David goes to meet Firebear and um there are these cigar store Indians flanking doors to his office and David has this observation that his son who has these politically corrupt views would probably say that those were offensive and yet here is this Native American man who has them prominently on display. Yeah, I mean that was definitely uh 
a, a conscious choice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it's interesting that, uh, you know, people who aren't involved or aren't a part of a, a group of people are, are willing to tell other people how to treat those people. Right, well, because um, you yeah, have Henri, who is a straight white male, having all these views. It, yeah, I mean, it, who is he to tell his father, you know, how, you know, a Native American man would feel, let alone somebody... Um, like Firebear, who's, who's had a common experience with David, who is, you know, he's a, he's a Native American man, but he's also a Vietnam vet. So mm-hmm. he has an overlap with David that Henri doesn't have with, with this guy. And, and I think that's where it gets complicated because, you know, Henri, you know, we could say he's he's a straight white man, but he's also a dad, you know, who is who is trying to protect Ella. Like he's also a member of the art community. Like there's there's a lot more to him than just being a straight white man. Mm-hmm. Just like there's a lot more to Fire Bear than being a straight white or straight Native American man. And there's a lot more to David than being a straight white. I think people are just way more complicated than that. And so you know, as we have all these simplistic rules, um, you know, this black and white thinking. Like if you violate this rule, therefore it means that. I think that's where we get into some problems. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, speaking of black and white, I want to kind of jump back to um, something you had said earlier about um, your father and your grandfather, how they were they were both veterans of the Vietnam War and World War II, um, which matches David in the book being a veteran of the Vietnam War, um, which obviously was a much more complicated war, whereas his, David's father is a veteran of World War II, which, you know, is this very black and white, pure war. It was a war the United States won, whereas Vietnam was a lot messier. So does this, David being a veteran of the Vietnam War, does that affect his outlook on life as opposed to, say, if he had been a veteran of World War II? Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. My uncle, especially towards the end of his life, he, he talked about Vietnam constantly. Um, you know, he would call me on the phone and he, I would just listen for hours to him, you know, rant about the Vietnam War. Whereas my grandfather would refuse to talk about the war at all. He didn't want to ever talk about it. He, he was not proud of being in World War II. Um, I think he, he understood that, you know, there was a great evil, you know, he understood that the Nazis were bad and, you know, he, he obviously understood um what was at stake, but it, it wasn't something that he uh, took a lot of pride in. It wasn't something that he ever wanted to talk about uh, in any detail. So it's interesting. I don't know what that means. You know, you would think that if because the, the narrative is the U.S. won World War II, that you know my grandfather would want to talk about that, that he would be proud. Um, but he wasn't. Whereas my uncle, with all the horrors of, of Vietnam. Um, and how messy that war was and, you know, and how complicated it was. I think my uncle found a, a great brotherhood with other Vietnam veterans. Like he was, he was proud to tell people um, that he was a veteran. I don't think he was necessarily proud of what he did in the war of the war itself, but I think he felt, um, you know, amongst other veterans, he, he had a family. He would go to the VA and, and, and help out and get counseling himself, but also talk to, um, you know, vets that were coming back from the Iraq war, the Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan. So he, he was very much out there and wanted to talk about it. Maybe because he needed closure, you know, that, that might be it. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, my, my grandfather, there was a lot more mystery. Um, so you would think it would be the other way around. But the one thing I've learned from dealing with both of them is that there are lingering effects of war. And even though I've never been a soldier, you know, let alone gone and fought in a foreign country, the effects of World War II and the effects of Vietnam very much affected my life and my upbringing um, vicariously. But, you know, through the things that my grandfather would tell me or through the things that my uncle would tell me, um, you know, I remember even just going to, to college and my grandfather that went to college and him saying, like, don't trust anybody in college. And when I got an agent, a literary agent, he's like, don't, don't trust your literary agent. You know, mm -hmm. these people don't trust anybody, basically. And, and I think that was very much um, him living through, you know, the Great Depression and then World War II as well, um, that there are these huge faceless powers um, that were evil and you always had to kind of watch out for them. Um, and so that was that was part of the worldview that I inherited, um, and I, and I kind of had to break free of that. It was it's pretty oppressive. Um, again, my uncle, you know, in, in, in the '80s, the Russians were always going to invade. Like we've got to be ready. You know, he had a, an arsenal of guns, and he, he gave me a gun when I was like 10. And you know, you got to be ready. You're going to man a window. And it was kind of a family joke, but it, it to him it wasn't a joke. You know, he was ready to go should the Rus the Russians invade. And that seemed wildly implausible to me and, you know, maybe my father who never went to war or my mother, but to my uncle who had experienced war firsthand and to my grandfather who had experienced war firsthand, that wasn't something that was improbable. That was, that was a real possibility for them. Um, and if you grow up around people who know about the horrors of war, um, I think that, 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 you know, you can't escape that color in your worldview. Absolutely. And, that, and that's something that David mentions, you know, multiple times without irony or sarcasm throughout the book, you know, being prepared in case. I think at one point he mentions that, you know, he'll have to take care of his son and provide him with guns in case there's ever an invasion. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's something that people don't want to think about. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't own guns now. You know, I, I don't... Uh, you know, and I think about that in my, the words of my uncle echo in my mind. If, if we were to be invaded, I wouldn't be prepared, and I'd need somebody like my uncle or my grandfather when they were younger to protect me. Um, and that's always been uh, the struggle for me because as I gravitated, especially in college, to people who um, were more liberal and, you know, obviously had all of the liberal views on gun control and you know all, all the other things that goes along with that there was always this nagging voice of yeah but these things happen to your uncle and your grandfather and if they didn't have weapons they would have died and well, you know that, that that kind of battle in my mind has kind of kept me um maybe open to both possibilities and maybe a little bit center of my my friends on the left and also you know center of my my family on the right and you know i think that's what enabled me to write this story i hope in a way that that was fair mm -hmm. so i think it goes without saying that i finished this book feeling very differently about david than i did when i started uh, my question well, for you about, good <laughs> um but the thing that i was wondering as i finished it was does david change as the novel goes or does your perception of him change I think, you know, without 
question David changes. You know, I mean, he goes on this journey, you know, trying to find closure. And I, I think at the end of his life, um, especially when he's shunned by his by his son, he, he has to reach out and he finds that his community is no longer uh, 100% straight and white as it was, you know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. You know, I mean, anybody that he encountered in his community was, you know, largely going to be like him. But of course, he's living in a world that's much more diverse. So, you know, when he goes to spin class, it's not going to be all white. He's going to meet someone like Sue, you know, and um, when he goes out into the community, he's going to he's going to meet people that might not be um, straight like he is. You know, he's going to meet different people. So I I think that David absolutely changes throughout the novel. And, you know, I watched my uncle and my my, uh, grandfather change throughout life as well, you know, especially towards the end of their lives. Uh, You know, as the world changed, it changed them too. Um, But I I really hope that um, the reader's perspective changes on David too. You know, there have been people, early readers have told me, I didn't think, I was going to get through this book. I didn't like David so much at the beginning, but then at the end, I loved him so much, and I didn't want to let him go. And and to me, that's that's a huge win. You know, no matter how many how many stars you give me on Goodreads or Amazon, <laughs> like if the book changes your perspective or moves your needle, then to me, that's mission accomplished. You know, because uh, I, I think the great power of the novel is is to to make people more empathetic. You know, we we shouldn't be just reading about people who are us. You know, a, a novel shouldn't just be, you know, a mirror. It should challenge us. It should present us with people with different viewpoints and, and hopefully allow us to empathize with them in a way that we might not have before we read the book. So, um, you know, I, I hope the reader changes because David changes and, and it shows that change is possible and understanding is possible. Um, but it takes an open mind. It takes a little bit of tolerance. and. Uh, that was definitely one thing I wanted to play with because, uh, you know, tolerance is a word that uh, has often been used a lot by my liberal friends and myself included. But how tolerant are we of people, you know, who are on the extreme right? And should we be tolerant of that? And what does that mean? Um, you know, these are questions that I hope the novel provokes. Absolutely. I think you definitely, as it goes on, you see him much less as this ideal of right-wingedness and more of just a human being with complex emotions and thoughts and loyalties. Mm, and I think it's also worth noting, too, that in the beginning of the novel, he is just had brain surgery, and he's in a hospital, and he's very vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And when people are vulnerable, they revert back to what they know. Um, they revert back to, you know, their the rock or whatever it is, whatever they cling to. And with David... He's clinging to the ideas that got him through Vietnam, even the superstitions. You know, if I don't believe I'm going to die, then I won't die. Like, that's what he's clinging to. But it also is my guns will keep me safe. And, you know, my patriotism will keep me safe. Mm-hmm. These are, you know, these are, um... oh, excuse me, I'm getting a a beep here on my phone. I apologize. Oh, no, um, no worries. We can edit it out. We... We, we, we cling to when we're, we're, we're vulnerable. And so I think, you know, the David that we meet at the beginning of the story is not the David that Sue meets in spin class like earlier before that. I mean, we, we meet this very vulnerable, damaged character who's clinging to these ideas that he thought kept him safe. 
for so many years. And, you know, if you're in the military and you went through Vietnam, you know, and you grew up in America during the 50s, like, you, you, that was drilled into you. Like, that's the thing that's keeping you safe from the Russians. Um, you know, that, that sense of tribalism was the thing that you believed in for so long. And so, you know, to kind of step out of that and branch out of that is, is pretty heroic. And it takes a lot more guts than, you know, somebody who was much younger than David, you know, say college days, you know, just kind of jumping onto an opinion before um, they've ever had any real world consequences. And so I think that's why, to me, David is, is, is so heroic like, through all his bravado and all of his his crazy language and all of his politically incorrect words. Like you have this person who's trying to figure it out, who really wants to be a positive part of his granddaughter's life, who deep down really wants to make things right with his son and who wants to engage in the world in a way that is, is pretty heroic. He wants to change. He wants to, he's open to relationships with, with people of you know ethnicities or sexual orientation that he might not have been open to having those relationships 30 years ago. Um, I heard somebody once said that you know if you're clinging to the same opinions you had 20 years ago, you haven't lived. And I think that that's true. I think that human beings really we evolved as people. If I believed in all the same things I believed in when I was 21, I'd probably be a failure as a person because you gain so much more information as you go along in life. You collect so much more information, and you've got to use that to synthesize your new ideas. And I think that's exactly what David's doing throughout the novel. And ironically, he becomes this kind of role model for Henri, who, you know, is so rigid in his liberalism. You know, he's so far stuck on the left. And, you know, he has forced to go through this journey, too, where, uh, you know, I'd like to think he becomes a little bit more open-minded and tolerant and definitely more appreciative of his father. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Um, so, Matthew, I have one more question for you. Um, and this is a question that we ask all of our guests on this podcast since it is primarily for um, teachers, professors, instructors, students, who was your favorite teacher? Who was my favorite teacher ever? Ever. <laughs> that's, like, that's like asking a parent to pick out their favorite child. I'm going to get in trouble. With I, I, I've had a, a few um, teachers. I had a, a, a teacher in college by the name of Helena White who... Um, came to America from, from communist Poland, actually. Mm-hmm. And she was a big, big drama person in Philadelphia. She loved it. She loved the theater, and she spoke with this beautiful accent. And she told me, uh, I think I was a sophomore in um, college. She said, I was taking a theater class, and I don't know why, but she just she took a liking to me, and she said, Matthew, you will write a play someday. That's how she spoke. You know, <laughs> someday you are, you are going to write a great play, and it'll be, you know, on stage, and I think you can do this. And she really encouraged me to write. Uh, you know, again, she wanted me to write for the theater, serious theater, drama. You know, that was that was the, the height of, you know, what she thought was great art. You know, never musicals. She hated musicals. <laughs> she wasn't really interested in novels. And... Uh, but she showed me attention at a time when I really needed attention, and I, I was not displaying any level of talent that warranted her attention by any stretch of the imagination. I've often wondered why um, she put so much emphasis on, you know, encouraging me. And she would read these plays I would I would write that were. I remember I wrote her a, 
play and sent it to her and she read it on summer break and she said, Matthew, this is this is longer than five Shakespeare's plays. Like no one would ever put this on. And <laughs> the comment sticks out now because it was a ridiculously long play that she sat through and edited and read and um you know, I, when I think back on it, you know, one of the things about Helena was that she did grow up in communist Russia and, and she saw uh, young people in America like not taking opportunities seriously. And it used to make her very angry um, because obviously when you grew up in, 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 in communism, you don't have the type of opportunity that we, we take for granted. And that always stuck with me. Um, you know, like my uh, uncle too is, again, a Vietnam vet and, you know, a Republican who never read novels. But when I wrote a, a novel, he would take it very seriously and he'd say, no, you got to keep working, you know, you got to keep pushing forward. And to me, the, the great teachers of my life were always the people who, who didn't have the opportunities that that I wanted, that never got to, to pursue those those opportunities. So that, that's just one teacher. I'm sure I could name more. And I hope I, if anyone's listening to this podcast, who is one of my former teachers, you're not offended that I picked the <laughs> I'm sure they won't be. Um, but no, that's great. Um, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it was my absolute pleasure. Thanks for uh, promoting The Reason You're Alive. Um, it means a lot to me. The book is very important to me, and uh, I, I value the opportunity to talk about it. So thank you. No problem. Happy to. All right, have a great day, Michael. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.